This is episode 126 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled, LA's Garment Factories. This episode is part of our near daily series during the pandemic. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show, and thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. I'm so honored to welcome a new guest to the show. Marissa Nuncio is with us today, and I'll introduce her. She joined the Garment Worker Center, the GWC, which is a a workers' rights organization leading the uh, movement to protect garment workers in Los Angeles, the sweatshops, so-called sweatshops. Uh, She joined them in 2013, Uh, She became aware of worker struggles growing up in Magnolia Park, which is the oldest Mexican community in Houston, Texas, surrounded by the city's port and oil refineries. That must have been very interesting. And she studied in Mexico for three years and um, learned about NAFTA. Her commitment to worker organization was solidified there And in 2001, she joined Sweatshop Watch, which is a co-founding organization of the GWC. And there her role was to support the newly established center and its campaigns. Inspired by work at the intersection of law and organizing, she went on to earn her JD at Loyola Law School. And she's represented unions, car wash workers, day laborers, and farm workers. Uh, She's proud to return to the GWC to help frame its strategic organizing direction with its members and amazing staff. And she holds a BA in Women's Studies from Mount Holyoke College. She's a member of the National Lawyers Guild and lives uh, in East Los Angeles. So welcome to the show, Marissa. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I've really been looking forward to our conversation. I have so many questions for you about the Los Angeles garment sweatshops and factories. So let's jump right in. Uh, can you give us some basic facts about these factories, how many there are and how many people they employ and where they are? Sure. Yeah. Uh, Los Angeles is the um, garment production capital of the U.S. So we have most of the uh, domestic production uh, for apparel in Los Angeles. Uh, There are at least 45,000 garment workers, though because much of the uh, workforce is kept off the books and there are unregistered factories, we expect that number to be higher, but at least 45,000 registered uh, workers. The garment industry here is sort of this really vast network of small factories. Um, they can be as small as you know, fifteen employees, ten employees. There's probably about about twenty five hundred or so. Oh my goodness! Factories, yeah. Oh, wow. Um, at least that, yeah. I see. Yeah. And when you say they're registered, what does that mean? 
Yeah, well, any garment manufacturer in California has to register with the state, the State Labor Commission. And the Labor Commission maintains a database where you can see if the garment manufacturer is registered or if their uh, registration will expire soon or even if their uh, registration has been revoked. So it's just your basic kind of first step to becoming a garment manufacturer in the state. Okay. And where are these factories in L.A.? The majority of them are in the downtown fashion district. Um, which is just on the south, kind of south end of downtown, increasingly moving further south. But I would say like starting around 7th, 8th Street, um, kind of bordered by like Hill and on the other side, maybe Central. And it goes further south below the 10 freeway. And as downtown gets more and more um, expensive and uh, gentrified, we're seeing that the shops are moving further south just to, you know, find cheaper rents. And who owns these factories? Yeah, it's a mix. The, the industry as a whole in L.A. Um, has, a, has a long history. Say historically, it was sort of started by Eastern European Jews who moved from New York here to mm-hmm. L.A., as New York has also a very long history of, um, of a garment district. And then there were, were shifts, you know, and I would say now you see factories owned by different Asian communities, Korean, Chinese. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see Middle Eastern owners and also increasingly Latino owners as garment workers might learn the industry, you know, and become a factory owner. And so tell us the demographics of the employees, like what nationalities they are, and is it mostly women? Are they mostly documented or what? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the majority of the workforce right now is uh, Latino, mostly from Mexico and Central America. Um, I would say about 80% of the workforce. And then the other 20% is Asian and mostly Chinese garment workers. It is predominantly female workforce. 60% of the workers are female. And while we don't have hard numbers on the uh, immigration status of workers, we estimate at least 25% of the workforce is undocumented, you know, though that number can be skewed by fear of reporting. So, you know, mm-hmm. it, could, it could be much larger. Mm-hmm. And tell us how much money the employees typically make and how are they paid? Sure. Yeah. Garment workers in LA are earning an average of $6 an hour, Wow, which is far below the local minimum wage. In Los Angeles, the minimum wage is between $13.25 and $14.25, depending on the size of the factory or the workplace in general. You get the higher minimum wage, $14.25, if your workplace has 26 or more employees. I see. So you can see that they're not even earning half the minimum wage. And that's just business as usual. That is is absolutely um, how this industry pays. This is not an anomaly of any sort. In 2016, the Department of Labor found that there was an 85% rate of wage theft, meaning an 85% of the investigated factories, they found the failure to pay minimum wage. So, you know, that tells us that this is 
pretty much wall to wall. And not only are workers not earning minimum wage, they're not earning their overtime wages either. And most workers work about 10 to 11 hours a day, but it can go upwards of 14 hours a day. Wow. They work six days a week, um, wow. sometimes seven, but at least six days a week. And they're just earning their straight wages. They're not earning their overtime pay, which is time and a half the minimum wage or you know your stated pay, um, but at least the minimum wage. So we categorize both those, both the failure to pay minimum wage and the failure to pay overtime as wage theft. You know, just if you're not paid what for the labor that you provided, that's a theft of your service. Okay, we're gonna. I'm gonna ask a whole bunch of questions here from sure. from a zone of ignorance. So, uh, so bear with me. Mm-hmm. So, are they paid in cash? I mean, how how can this happen? Mm. It varies. It really varies, though. Um, you know, the, the Garment Worker Center runs a, a weekly uh, legal clinic, and we primarily see cash pay these days. Um, so that's one way to keep things off the books, right, is cash pay and to not have payroll records as mm-hmm. evidence of what you're doing. Um, we also see falsified payroll records, so just falsified oh. hours, you know, like um, documenting far less hours than the worker actually works, and that'll coincide with the lower pay that they, that they make. Another major vehicle for us, what we see as a big driver of wage theft in this industry, is the fact that most workers are not paid by the hour, but rather they're paid by the piece. Oh. You know, you will get paid essentially per operation. So if your job one day is to set a sleeve, you're going to get paid by how many sleeves you set, right? Mm-hmm. And those piece rates can be as low as you know, three cents, five cents, you know, if it's a, if it's a tougher operation or a more challenging material to work with, you know, you'll see them go up to 11 cents, 12, you know, 15 cents, but they're very low. It's just sort of impossible to sew enough at that low of a piece rate to ever earn the minimum wage. And as the minimum wage rates have rightly gone up, right? They've, they've been increasing over the last few years. The piece rates have not gone up. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not regulated in that way. It's to the discretion of the, of the factory owner. And so if the piece rates are not going up, you know, it's sort of on the worker to work harder and try to, you know, make the minimum wage by the amount of pieces they sew, but it's just sort of impossible. And the factory owner is supposed to guarantee the difference between what a worker earns at their piece rate in an hour and the applicable minimum wage, but they just don't do it. They just pay the piece rate. I see. That's very enlightening. And how did these workers get to Los Angeles? Are they imported by the factory owners? Do they just show up? Mm. And what's, what's their financial situation when they arrive? Do they owe money to people? Like, are they having to work enslaved conditions in order to pay somebody off? Like what's happening? Mm-hmm. Yeah, by and large, the workforce is, is a, you know, is an immigrant workforce. It's, a, it's, it's folks that have migrated here from their home countries in search of employment, in search of safety. You know, they either bring their sewing skills with them from having worked in factories in their home country, or there are sort of entry point kind of entry jobs you can get in the garment industry. 
if you don't yet know how to sew, you can become a trimmer, you know, you trim threads, um, you can a packer, you know, it doesn't require that, you know, um, the machines yet. And a lot of our members tell us that also, you know, I don't need to know English yet because I'm at a machine, right? You know, I can learn some basic workplace words and, and I'm, I'm good to go. The Los Angeles industry does have a very ugly history with uh, labor trafficking. In the mid-90s, there was a big case that came out, kind of known as the Thai El Monte scandal, in which dozens of workers were found to have been trafficked in, passports taken, you know, recruitment fees owed, and they were kept in an apartment building against oh, their... Oh, I remember this. Yeah, it was, it, it was a really horrible situation. Mm-hmm. They were kept there against their will, uh, sewing for big, big name brands at the time. And when that came to light, you know, a lot of um, advocates came together to support the workers, really push for le- more protective legislation. Um, and actually, in many ways, we the garment worker sees that as sort of the genesis of its existence, that the coalition of folks that came together to support those workers then also created the Garment Worker Center. Mm, I see. Yeah. Fortunately, we don't see trafficking like that anymore in the I industry. See. Um, so th- that is a good thing. Um, mm-hmm. It doesn't mean the wages have improved, but it is a good thing that that, that is, by and large, is not what we're seeing. I think there was enough exposure and sort of, you know, really blowing that up and bringing it to light and, you know, passing um, some legislation to avoid that happening again. And let me ask if there's any kind of safety net for the employees, like Mm. do any of the factories provide disability or unemployment Mm. or sick leave or any of that? No, really not at all. Unfortunately, you know, the safety net that exists is very minimal and has been hard fought by workers um, campaigning for it. Um, So in Los Angeles, for example, there's a worker can get six days of paid leave. You can accrue that many days of paid sick leave, but, you know, having the right to something doesn't mean that it's respected, right? It doesn't mean that that right is respected and it's not but at least the law exists so that a worker could bring a claim forward and say, hey, my, you know, my factory owner is not giving me paid sick days. Um, but, you know, by and large, they'd have to do that sort of on their own, right? They'd have to proactively fight for that and get back wages for that. So it's, it's not working yet as it should for garment workers. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, you know, a garment workers never, you know, reported to us that their employer provides them, you know, with a sick leave policy or a family leave policy. You know, they have to fight, right, to have just their basic sick leave and maternity leave rights respected. And most workers just know if, you know, if they get sick or, you know, if it, it's something in any way extended, they just sort of expect not to get called back to work. Wow. Yeah, undocumented workers are not eligible for unemployment benefits. So when they're laid off or terminated, they're just out of luck. They just, they cannot apply for unemployment benefits. So, you know, something that so many of us have the right to and that can help us from, you know, between jobs is not available to garment workers. 
Garment workers can apply um, regardless of their immigration status. They can apply for like uh, disability insurance um, or paid family leave to care for a sick family member and disability insurance is to care for yourself if you're sick and you know, need time to heal or to get better. Um, and which is extremely important right now as during this pandemic. Mm-hmm. So those avenues are available to workers. The challenge for workers is that so many are kept off the books. They're just not on payroll records mm-hmm. that proving their employment is, is challenging for them when they apply. So it means their employer has not paid into the system for them. Mm-hmm. They're still eligible to apply but there's an extra hurdle of them having to prove up their employment by their own records and, and things of that nature. So if they get turned down, there's no recourse for them. Yeah, it's really hard. It's really hard. We're certainly encouraging workers like, you know, we refer folks to legal aid organizations mm-hmm. um, if it's, a, you know, something kind of complicated and, you know, we feel like they really need support to apply. So we're encouraging folks to apply because it is their right to Um, We also do a lot of training with workers on how to document their own hours, Mm -hmm. you know, the factory information, the owner information, um, and things like that. So that if something happens and and they need to file a wage claim or they need to file for disability insurance, et cetera, that they have that to to go forward with. Um, But it's it's very challenging. Yeah, the the whole thing's very confusing to me. I mean... Are these factories regulated in any way? Like does OSHA go in there or health officials or Department of Labor? Or how how does this all pass under the eyes of the officials? Yeah, I mean, it's it's very nuanced, I would say. It's okay. you know, there are multiple labor and health and safety enforcement agencies that have the authority to um, inspect to cite these factories for violations and to um, adjudicate wage claims for garment workers. So there is the Federal Department of Labor um, and they have a garment division in Los Angeles. There is the State Labor Commission and the Labor Commission also has a garment uh, unit Mm. specifically for garment wage claims. The Labor Commission also has a Bureau of Field Enforcement that will um, investigate um, or inspect factories. And OSHA also has the authority to go in and inspect factories. I think there's a lot of issues at play, however. One is that real scattered network of factories that I talked about. There's thousands of factories, tens of thousands of workers, and each labor division and enforcement agency has half a dozen to a dozen maybe you know or so employees right to do that work mm-hmm. so there one it's just resources there's not yet enough resources we have seen improvements i will i will i will definitely say that i think with years of worker organizing and advocacy there have been major improvements in the labor commission and dol and there's some real dedicated staff there who are using smart strategies to try to protect this workforce. We have um, a great labor commissioner who just went on to become labor secretary. Her name was Julie Sue. Now she was replaced by uh, Lilia Garcia Brower, another great advocate for workers. 
Um, but again, it's the funding and the resources that's necessary to really do the job. So that's one issue at play. I think another issue that is has really hamstrung enforcement agencies, especially on the side of wage standards, and, and frankly, you know, health and safety as well. But it's that not everybody along the supply chain is being held legally responsible. So the garment industry operates by subcontracting. I'll give an example. So if the brand Fashion Nova, which is a very popular brand right now that's being produced in Los Angeles, they're a corporation that sells uh, women's clothing online. They contract with a series of garment manufacturers who help with design, who help with, it could be sourcing fabric and, you know, notions and material. And then those garment uh, manufacturers will contract out to factories where the garment workers are and where the assembly happens. And there could even be further subcontracting out to smaller factories. Unfortunately, the only people that are held responsible for unpaid wages are uh, the factory owner mm-hmm. and one step up the supply chain where there's a direct contract, but it will not extend all the way up to the fashion brand like Fashion Nova that I mentioned. And, and that's just the way the law currently is working. I see. And uh, just the way the, our labor code works and doesn't work. And in our opinion, you, you have to um, kind of tackle this industry from all ends. You know, you have to have really strong, good law and robust enforcement. But you also have to have everybody that is responsible in this industry, you know, who's taking part in production. They have to be responsible for wages. And if you don't have sort of those at the top of the supply chain being held legally responsible, you're going to have gaps. It's just a gap, right? It's a big, you know, missing component in legal liability. Not only do we just sort of believe that kind of morally or ethically, but we also rely on Department of Labor studies. They use a... um, a model called time studies. They go in, they time how long it takes to make a garment, how many workers there are, when it's due to the corporation like Fashion Nova, for example. And they can figure out how much the corporation should have paid for their garment orders so mm-hmm. that by the time it goes down to the factory level, that factory could comply with minimum wage and overtime. Mm-hmm. And what they have found is that corporations are paying between only 50 to 70% of what is necessary for the factory owner to be able to comply with minimum wage and overtime. So it's not just that we believe like, hey, ethically, everybody should be responsible, but it's because we also know that corporations are actually creating the sweatshop wages Mm -hmm. and then not being held legally liable it's, it's a sort of gaping hole in worker protections, right? But again, that's the way the law is currently working. And we are working on that. Um, it's actually a big component of our work this year that, you know, we're membership-based. So our, you know, our members lead our campaign. Our membership over the past couple of years has been crafting a policy solution. And um, this year introduced a bill in Sacramento 
to change that and to essentially make sure that everybody along the supply chain is sharing and responsibility for unpaid wages. That bill is called SB 1399. The bill also will tackle unfair pay systems as well. So yeah, you know, it's a little complicated with the pandemic, but our bill is still there. It's still alive. I think given that workers are making masks now, you know, facial masks and medical scrubs, it's as relevant sort of now more than ever. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that, Marissa. That that really helps a lot. And I want to go back to the fashion world in a minute, but first I want to ask about undocumented workers because this is an issue that is always confusing to me, and I've never had somebody who's an expert like you that I could ask this of. It seems to me that in California, we're so dependent on uh, immigrant labor, including undocumented workers, mm-hmm. especially the farm workers. Mm-hmm. And I feel as though you know we have this thing about if they all vanish, the state would just collapse. There was a campaign about that a few years ago. And yet I hear all this you know, anti-immigration rhetoric. So how how does this work? Like how do the officials just look the other way when it comes to undocumented workers, knowing that our economy is so dependent on them? Is that what's happening? I mean, what's the reality behind all this? Hmm. And, And do you mean like, how is it that undocumented workers are so heavily employed in these industries? Yeah, I guess so. Um. You know, I, uh, gosh, I don't, I don't know what the perspective of like regulatory agencies is on this. I I couldn't speak to that. What we know is that, and, and because of the practices that we see is that employers and all the sort of companies that, you know, use undocumented workforces, even through a sort of secondary relationship, you know, the reality is they, they employ them because they're cheaper. Mm-hmm. They view them as more exploitable. And I, again, I don't say that from a, only a sort of moral standpoint, but from knowing that, you know, the practices we see bear this out, such as mm-hmm. factory owners will have different pay scales for documented workers and undocumented workers, and they pay less to the undocumented workers. I see. For example, right now, where Many garment factories have been shut down as non-essential businesses because garment production isn't essential. Okay. There are factories that are operating under the radar of those orders. Mm-hmm. And what they did is send home, they laid off their documented workforce and kept their undocumented workforce. Right. And they're having them go through back doors, secret entrances in locked factories and behind closed windows. And they do that because they think undocumented workers are are less likely to report because they're afraid themselves of, you know, perhaps, you know, incurring some sort of enforcement action given their immigration status. So, you know, we know that they're just seen as a more vulnerable workforce. Mm -hmm. The other thing is, is that, you know, and I think this is the right thing is that um, enforce like labor enforcement agencies, their job is not to enforce immigration law. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the law is such that if you've been employed by somebody, you do, you, you do have certain rights regardless of your immigration status. And it should be that way. I see. 
Department of Labor, or the Labor Commission. It's just not their jurisdiction. It's not what they're going to be concerned about. If you were employed, you didn't get paid properly, or your other rights are being violated, then you know you have the right to some sort of remedy. Um, and it's ICE, right, that mm-hmm. has you know the the authority to bring forward enforcement action against undocumented uh, folks. Um, I think we're seeing those enforcement actions and happening in the Trump administration has really focused those enforcement actions in communities, like in neighborhoods, you know, where they think there's like, you know, high level of deportation orders pending or, you know, or they, you know, they, they have their criteria for going out into certain neighborhoods. They've also, you know, targeted certain industries. Um, we've certainly ha- seen ice raids in the garment industry in the past not in recent years, which we're grateful for, but it's definitely a constant fear, I would say, because it has happened in the past. Workers just sort of always know that that's a possibility. And certainly there was more fear with the Trump administration. There's been more fear. And, um, you know, we approach it by training workers on what their rights are when confronted with immigration enforcement. I I think it's a really, (laughs) it's also a really complicated um, system, you know, but I, I really believe that, I guess I'll just, you know, this is my very um, kind of theoretical and my political position on the issue is that the garment industry is sort of a very like, historically kind of entrenched capitalist system you know it's it's sort of your kind it's like a stalwart of like industrialism and it's also always been very racialized um it's been very gendered and at this moment in our history anti-immigrant sentiment and anti-immigrant policy is so high that these are the workforces that we're going to see in low-wage and service industries, you know, we're going to see immigrant workers here um, because they are not respected and appreciated in our society. They are treated as second-class people. Mm -hmm. Therefore, they're employed in that way as well. So like I said, we have to approach this industry and other similar industries from all ends, right? And fight for people's rights from many different angles, including you know, protecting their rights as immigrants. Um, So I'm sure I didn't give you, you know, that beautiful answer that you were hoping for because (laughs) it is that complicated. It's complicated. Um, But absolutely, there is also the hypocrisy of not respecting and not wanting immigrants in our community, yet wanting the cheap labor that is forced upon them, right? That is, is simply unfortunately right now sort of very a very American way um, is that we want our exploitable workforce and yet we don't want that workforce to be and live and enjoy the benefits the full benefits of our community do you feel that though ice kind of looks the other way when it comes to certain industries hmm I don't know that I feel that I don't I I, I actually and I think most workers feel like it's just coming. And then last year, there was like ice raids at meat processing plants. These are important places in the food chain system, right? I I don't know that it's looking the other way. I think it's like, 
I don't know. I really feel like it could just be like a matter of when, unfortunately. I see. You know? Yeah. And certainly how we approach it is just be ready. I spend my summers in a little ski town and there's a huge Hispanic population there in order to service the tourist trade. So the restaurant workers and the cleaners and all kinds of people. And it's an interesting community because we're all together since it's such a small town. And so you go to the same schools as the Hispanic population, you know, which doesn't happen in, in larger cities. And mm. so I got to know that community quite well because we were, my kids were soccer players and a lot of the Hispanic kids are soccer players. And so I was talking to them after Trump got elected and was, you know, really struck by how frightened the children were that they would come home from school and find that their parents had been deported. Mm-hmm. So when you talked about that in Los Angeles, it really struck uh, struck a chord with me. Yeah. What's the situation now as far as that kind of fear goes? Um, you know, every we've seen every year in this first four years of um, his administration that there's been ICE enforcement activity. And so, you know, I would say every time that happens, like so every time it's in the news that you know, either enforcement activity is coming up because usually there'll be announcements like ICE is going to conduct raids in, you know, these cities. Every time that happens, the fear kind of comes back up. I think, you know, in between it's sort of like, okay, like we got to live our lives, right? Like Mm -hmm. normal and as best as we can. But every time those you know, enforcement activity is announced and every time raids happen, that fear comes right back up. And our, mem- for example, our members come to us and say, you know, what will happen if this or that, you know, various scenarios that they may be worried about a sick family member. What do I do to, you know, make sure they're going to be okay if I, if I get detained, if I get deported? My kids, sure. you know, so our members will ask, how do I set up a guardianship, right? Preemptively, right? To proactively in case they get deported, how do I set up a power of attorney because I have this wage claim pending and that's literally going to be what kind of brings my family, you know, to a balance point um, when I finally get three years of wages owed to me paid. And, but if I get deported, how do I make sure like my, you know, my wife or my kids can get this mm-hmm. every single time we kind of redo trainings on you know your rights and and what your rights are to you know to remain silent and to you know how to protect yourself and also we do that sort of like family plan and mm-hmm. you know make sure folks have the resources they need to file those guardianships and create those powers of attorney yeah so it's unfortunately it's just been it's kind of like this kind of regular rotation i see there's enforcement activity announced everybody's scared again you know Um, especially when it's announced in Los Angeles, which we've had a number of times in the past few years. I see. That's very helpful, very uh, specific information. Is there a way for factories to obtain documentation for their workers? Is there a kind of pathway for, for them to do that? There, there are, there, yeah, there are ways for employers to sponsor workforces. I'm a labor and employment attorney, not an immigration attorney, so that's not my field of expertise. There are ways, but I, I don't think it's like a solution. It's sort of a, um, how do I say, it's, it's sort of a, um, it could be like seasonal or it's very 
challenging to get, you know, to be able to get that kind of sponsorship. It has to be for sort of like really unique or niche industries. Mm-hmm. We don't really see that that type of um, sponsorship in this industry. Maybe they're just not incentivized enough to do it. So I know in the biotech world, we used to sponsor, you know, kind of high level skilled people, specialized in engineers and scientists. I think it was fairly expensive. And so maybe that's why it's not applicable in the garment world, because it, it yeah. just would cost too much per employee. Yeah, it could be. And, and also, I think there's been a lot of shifts also recently that there's a focus on more kind of professionalized kind of industries, mm-hmm. industries that are considered highly educated and professionalized industries. Um, we have seen a bit of like guest workers or sort of, you know, workers on a, on a visa, technical visa, like for like, you know, designer areas of the industry. There's a lot of um, digital design mm-hmm. kind of that happens in this industry at a different point in the supply chain. And um, we've seen a bit of that, but yeah, I think you're right. I think it's just not it's just sort of like applicable or accessible, right. To the kind of factory side of the industry. Gotcha. Okay. Let's go back to the fashion world for a few minutes. So let's start with where the clothes that are made in the LA factories go. Mm. Um, Sure. Um, So most of what's made in Los Angeles is women's fashion. Mm -hmm. And it's also tends to be like young women's fashion. Um, It's known as fast fashion. Okay. So it's a part of the apparel sector that responds to multiple fashion seasons in a year, meaning like styles, new styles are being created sort of constantly throughout the year. I think there's something of like 13 fashion seasons. Wow. It's also sort of like consumer driven and also really cheaply made, cheaply designed and cheap prices type of apparel. So you're talking, you know, $10, you know, skirt kind of thing, but not something you expect to last should be that like lasting piece in here Mm -hmm. in your uh, closet. That's what's made here. And the reason is, is because those brands, they may have the bulk of their um, production being made overseas, but they need a local hub to be able to get some portion of that um, style, that season out on the shelves quickly. Oh, I see. Or available to their customers quickly if they're an online retailer. That's why LA sort of withstood a lot of um, contraction and a lot of, you know, outsourcing, right? Overseas production. Okay. But we continue to have an industry because that's what's needed, right? For folks in the sector of the apparel industry. It's, it's changing now, but, you know, I've been doing this now for in some form for 20 years. And I used to say, it's like the mall clothes. It's like, you know, the, you know, think of the mall stores for young women, you know, like Windsor and Charlotte Russe and Forever 21. That's what's being made here. And that's where it's going. Some of it goes out for for export as well. Um, But that's also really shifting. So I have to update my my speaking points, but it's really shifting because we're seeing a lot of this clothing now is being sold um, exclusively online. Mm. Just a 
sign of our times. Um, there are some brands that don't have brick and mortar stores anymore. Fashion Nova, I mentioned earlier, I think they have like one or two flagship stores and that's it. But yet they're one of the most popular and growing brands, but they sell it uh, almost exclusively online. And I sort of call them the new Forever 21. Mm-hmm. That's their demographic, you know, young women. They're also, if you if you want to think about their audience um, and their consumer, you want to think of what's known as celebrity influencers. Mm. So you want to think of the Kardashians, right? The Kardashian sisters who will wear their clothing and model it on Instagram. Okay. They use that as their uh, marketing because it generates sales. It generates like, you know, that buzz and that interest. And, you know, the Kardashians, you know, wore this Fashion Nova dress or Cardi B, who's a famous rapper, you know, it has her own Fashion Nova line. Hmm. It's really interesting, I think, you know, these shifts in, in how clothing is being marketed and how it's being sold. Um, you still have the same kind of consumer base, young women, but it's definitely being kind of put out into the market in a really different way mm-hmm. that I just find very interesting. We also see in Los Angeles an increasing number of what uh, are known as like subscription boxes. So an increasing number of production for subscription boxes like Dia and Company, like Stitch Fix. And those are like where consumers can basically subscribe to get five articles of clothing picked by an online stylist from Dia and company uh, based on a profile you created. And then they send it to you monthly. They send you five articles of clothing and you can pick the one or the five that you like. Again, that kind of responds to quick, you know, every month you have consumers who you need to send to. So we're seeing that is also being produced here. And these are shifts that we find really interesting. Um, A question that it raises for us and that we're kind of keeping our eye on is the fact that clothing is being sold online and consumers are being offered like two day shipping, one day shipping. What is the impact of workers of that? Is that a driver of kind of unrealistic turnaround times and uh, more exploitative conditions in the factory? We don't know yet. We think that that might be the case, right? Um, and, but So we're definitely keeping an eye on this. It's amazing how laughably foreign this all is to me. I know so, I know so little about the fashion world. <laughs> it was to me too, though. But I wanted to ask you, like, are any of the brands... Do they care about the factory workers? Are there any that you would like to give a shout out to? Mm. Or do you feel as though as consumers, we should, there are some brands that we should boycott? I mean, how do we as consumers put pressure on the fashion world so that laborers throughout the chain are paid, you know, reasonably well? Absolutely. No, I, I, I can definitely say again, I've, you know, I did this anti-sweatshop work with the Garment Workers Center um, for actually for three years when it first opened its doors. And then I went to work with other low-wage industries. And then it came back seven years ago as its director. One really inspiring, heartening shift that I've seen from those first years 
is that there's a growing number of ethical brands mm. in Los Angeles and across the country and around the world. There's a growing number of fashion designers and fashion brands that really want to change this kind of status quo mm -hmm. and want to be part of it and want to um, implement different production models to be a part of that change. That to me is very inspiring. I would say it's still growing. It's still very tough, you know, because these brands have to compete with the sweatshop brands, right? You know, they're trying to stay afloat and pay the rent that's extremely expensive in Los Angeles to mm. have a factory or, you know, to do all of that with, you know, a competitor that is cutting its labor costs by as much as half, right? So it's tough, but I am very inspired by folks out there trying to do this. And there's a lot of like ethical fashionista groups of like, kind of folks coming together to like promote this type of production. And so I think that's growing. We haven't reached reach a tipping point with that. Mm -hmm. You know, my hope is that we do someday. And I might, our job at the Garment Workers Center as advocates, as an advocacy organizing space is, well, how do we fight for laws that create a level playing field, right? If everybody is you know, required to pay, you know, legal wages, that creates a level playing field for these folks trying to do the right thing, right? We want that to happen. We want to see a thriving garment industry, right? Because then if it's thriving for everybody, it should, you know, will be thriving for, for workers as well. I will also say, you know, we're not a monitoring body. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I can't vouch, you know, I can't say go here, go, you know, this is that brand. Um, what we do have on our website, however, are sort of some clearing houses, kind of like ethical fashion clearing houses where you can learn about ethical brands and what they're producing and what their kind of model is. So I would encourage people to go to our website, garmentworkercenter.org and take a look there. We're always trying to add to it as we learn. You know, what's the new shift for us is we actually now for the past two years have employed what we call a high road organizer because we want to be able to really support this kind of production and understand it, understand what helps keep them afloat in this industry. Um, and so we have a full-time organizer who's networking with these brands, who's mm. learning their models, who's talking to them, who's also asking, what are your challenges? Like, where are there overlaps where we can fight for policy that might support your business to stay afloat, right? And how can these brands work with us to fight for the same things that workers are fighting for? So, yeah. So when I get really down and like, think this is a mountain that we're fighting, this mountain of exploitation. Mm -hmm. I do get really inspired by the fact that there are a lot of startups, there are a lot of companies out there really trying to figure it out together. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. And it shows a real important shift that we can see some change in this industry. Yeah. So definitely I would encourage folks to always look for things like a fair trade label, look for things like union made, and look for um, brands that are putting themselves out there sustainable or ethical fashion. And I would also say, though, you know, use a wise kind of discerning eye. It's not enough to use organic cotton and call yourself a sustainable fashion brand. 
if you're the labor side of your production is not compliant, right? And workers are being exploited. So we're also pretty serious about that too, that, you know, ethical fashion has to include environmental and labor standards. I was riding on a plane next to a woman who has had a podcast and her business model was about sourcing ethical clothing. Mm -hmm. And so she would have guests on who had, you know, little, little businesses that were, that was working in this space. So I was asking her about her business and the podcast and so forth. And she kind of said in passing, you know, and then there's this whole thing about burning clothes. I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> so she she told me about this phenomenon where the high-end brands, in order to get their clothes off the market when they have excess inventory, they'll burn it so that it yeah. doesn't flow out in the supply chain and, you know, quote unquote, devalue the brand. Right. I was so flabbergasted. I mean, again, it just shows how little I, I know about this industry and, and this kind of approach to, to clothing. Yeah, it's I mean, it's a huge industry. It's a huge global industry. And, you know, it's actually been deemed the second dirtiest industry next to oil. Mm, wow. Because of some, you know, like what you described, because of how much fast fashion clogs up the landfills, because it's really just, it's not going to last long. <laughs> so it ends wow. up in the landfills, you know, and because of all the like dyeing, like fabric dyeing and chemical treatments that are used on clothing, you know, for different kind of embellishments and like finishes. Yeah, it's, there's a lot to tackle in this industry, for mm -hmm. sure. Right. Okay. And I just have to ask this obvious question. So what do you say to people when you talk about the situation that our garment workers are working under and they say back, well, they're just lucky to have a job or they're better off here than in their home country? I would say that that is a really, and I have said that this, that's a very, very narrow-minded view. I, I think that that's a way of approaching the world, that it's sort of a zero-sum game and there's not enough to go around. I mm. disagree with that. I think that there actually is an abundance of resources that we can all benefit from our labor when the system works fairly. Um, and so I don't think that that is at all an answer to, you know, to these situations to say, well, you should just be grateful. Mm -hmm. No, we should never be grateful if our labor is exploited. Not at all. Like, you know, even if somebody migrated out of fear, you know, or out of poverty, no one should ever be grateful that they're continuing to be exploited in an industry that is highly, highly lucrative mm. for certain actors. So that's, that's my answer to that, that everybody should be able to benefit from their hard work, from their labor, from their skill. You know, I also really push back on the notion that we hear that this is an unskilled labor force. Mm. I would challenge anybody to sit at an industrial sewing machine and try to make a garment and not have your fingers sewn through. These are fast machines. These are skilled workers. Um, they are really skilled workers. Even if you can sew at home on your, your Singer home sewing machine, you likely can't sit down at an industrial machine and figure it out. I see. So that's what I push back on. No, no, no. This is skilled labor. They're clothing us. They're providing hours of their labor. Very simply, all they're asking for is that their labor be treated with dignity, treated with respect, and paid for. 
you know, just as anybody, whatever job it is, you would balk if you gave 40 hours and were only paid for 20 of it, you know, you wouldn't stand by some and say, well, you should just be grateful you have a job. No, you should be grateful you have a job that, that respects and fully compensates you. And until that happens, nobody should be grateful for this situation. Okay, one last question for you. Sure. Tell me about trying to organize a labor force like this. Like, what are what are the challenges? Who supports the union? Who doesn't? And mm. what benefits could it provide? And, and mm. what are the downsides of organizing? Mm. Yeah, I mean, organizing in this workforce, yeah, it's challenging. It's also super, super inspiring and <laughs> and like very intellectually sort of challenging and fun. Mm. Because you're trying to figure out strategies to topple, you know, to really transform, you know, very, very kind of entrenched systems of production, mm. right? So, you know, getting your head around that is challenging and it's fun to um, do that with workers, right? And figure out ways to make those questions of how to make that accessible to the workforce, I find really, really moving. The challenges are this. The challenges are that it's not a unionized industry at all. Mm -hmm. The unionization in this industry really steadily declined since the 70s. Mm. And um, with increased outsourcing, you know, in production overseas, and we really see almost none now. Um, And in many ways, it's what the Garment Worker Center kind of grew up like in that absence of unionization to say, well, we still need an organizing space. I see. We're not operating as a union or under that model. We're not bargaining and fighting for contracts at shops. We're fighting, I would say, maybe bigger picture, kind of a bigger landscape of like policy fights and taking on the brands through consumer campaigns. Okay. We'll tackle a brand that is a notorious switch up user and just bring what we call like a direct action campaign against them to inform their consumers, you know, to really pressure them to do the right thing. And then we push for stronger law and we're constantly fighting to reach workers. So we do a ton of education and outreach. Mm-hmm. No change will happen without an educated, empowered, agitated workforce. So that's our job. The challenges are that this is a very volatile industry. It churns is kind of how I describe mm-hmm. it, is that you can you can have workers bring forward a wage claim against a factory owner and have organized to do that. And then they come back to a closed factory oh. and factories can close overnight. I you know, see. we've seen it many times where workers will call us and say, you know, the door is locked and there's no machines inside or they're pulling out their sewing machines right now. That is a challenge. And it's, it just, uh, you know, it takes a lot of um, kind of careful planning for, you know, how, um, how and when um, workers, you know, should bring forward a campaign. Mm-hmm. It takes planning of no, like really doing a lot of corporate research and understanding the business and production model for, for brands. Why are they here? Why do they need to be here? You know, what what's the potential for them leaving, pulling out production? So a lot of that work is behind the scenes of what you might see on the news as a, you know, like a protest outside of a, of a factory or protest outside of a, you know, that's a lot of the work that we do. 
I would definitely say it's a challenge that, you know, right now, legally, fashion brands are not being held accountable. Mm-hmm. Again, that's the reason we're, we've brought forward legislation to close that gap. Like, if workers continue to have to face that kind of legal loophole, they're always going to be up against that challenge, right? You know, we really need to help workers close that so that brands are also incentivized to include the true cost of labor in their entire business model and also like pay their fair share along the supply chain so that, you know, factories don't have to shut down overnight because they can't weather on their own, can't weather a wage claim, right? Uh Right. But if everybody is being held responsible, we believe that there'll be more stability in the industry. Mm, Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, I would say, I'd say this is a much easier hurdle to tackle, but you know, if you're newer to the industry, if you're undocumented, they're just challenges to having the time to sort of learn what your rights are and fighting to assert your rights through a wage claim or through a campaign. Those are challenges, right? It's harder if someone's scared. Sure. You have to tackle that first right? You have to tackle if someone, you know, is a mom and, you know, it's like, man, I don't know if I can get to this planning meeting, you know, so you have to be creative. Like, how do you reach people, right? And how do you make things accessible for them? But I think that's part of organizing and finding those challenges and then just really building relationships with people, right? Just really building trusting and reciprocal relationships with folks so that you can, you know, organize together and organize according to what their life looks like, you know, because workers are not only just workers, right? We're, you know, like any of us, we're moms, we're caring for our elders, we're going to school, you know, we have second jobs, all kinds of things, right? So we always really try to meet folks where they are and find models that work for their lives, right? Well, thank you so much for the work that you do. And before I let you go, I wondered if you wanted to share anything with our listeners, like where they can follow your work or support you yeah. or anything you'd like. I appreciate that. I'd like to share this. I would like to share that even, even more so the all the exploitation that I described and the hurdles for workers are even more kind of deeply felt at the this moment as we're all kind of journeying through this pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we maintain a membership and um, 70% of our members lost their jobs overnight or within oh, wow. a span of a couple of days. And these were folks, again, as I said, who are earning $6 an hour and barely, barely making ends meet um, and then lost their job. And because we're all under stay-at-home orders, there's no real possibility of shifting and moving to another industry, you know, finding some other employment. Folks are just at home. So, uh, you know, our members have reported tremendous food insecurity, Mm -hmm. just not having food in the fridge, not having money for, um, you know, just basic needs, you know, medicine, um, just household needs, and a tremendous amount of anxiety about how they'll ever make up the rent and utility uh, costs that are just kind of piling up. And that they're unable to pay. So that is the case for unemployed workers. And then for employed workers, we're seeing um, that they're producing face masks and medical apparel in really unsafe conditions and continuing to earn the reports of in between five and 15 cents a mask. So workers have been deemed essential labor, right? Essential workers to produce 
critically needed equipment, and yet their labor standards have not been elevated at all. That's unacceptable to us, and they're still facing income insecurity while they're producing this really important equipment. One of the uh, ways that folks out there can help is to support our emergency relief fund for workers. Mm. We're raising money to just give financial aid, direct financial aid, every single cent goes straight to the workers. It's not a fundraiser for the organization. It's a fundraiser for our membership. Last month, we distributed over $20,000 to our membership. Nice. And we want to do the same or more in about two weeks. So we're fundraising um, and we're asking folks, they can go to tinyurl.com forward slash GWC emergency relief fund. Um, and just donate there. Our average donation is like, I mean, we're seeing like five to $50 donations, you know, and like we were able to raise Mm. that 20,000 that we gave out to our members. So every bit counts. Um, If you didn't catch that, you can always go to garmentworkercenter.org and you'll be taken directly to our donation link. Okay. I can put that link on the show notes too. Great. It's been tremendous to see how many folks are out there ready to support. And like I said, it goes directly, directly to our membership. Well, thank you so much for educating us today, Marissa. I really appreciate it. And thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. And I look forward to listening. That's it, everybody. You've made it through another episode of Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work. During the pandemic, we'll be changing our format in honor of those who are quarantined or working on the front lines. We'll put out shorter shows on a daily or near daily basis early in the morning to start your day on a positive and interesting note. We'll be considering work-related issues relevant while COVID-19 is impacting the world. If you have a question or a comment or a message for our listeners, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us through the website, discreteguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T, where you can also find other resources about working better together. Thank you for joining my quest to improve our workplaces, our work lives, and our lives in general. And thanks for listening. We look forward to returning to our old format when the world has returned to a more normal state. In the meantime, please hang in there, stay safe, and know that I care about you.